0: Hi guys I'm Jamie Beebe
1: and I'm Jake Deptula
0: we're the hosts of the true crime podcast strictly stalking brought to you from podcast one
1: each week strictly stalking gives stalking survivors the platform to share their stories in their own words
0: do you know why survivors refer to stalking as murder in slow motion have you ever felt like you were being hunted by a stranger would you know where to turn if a stalker was living in your house and you didn't know
1: we're bringing you these stories to raise awareness about stalking and give you the resources to know what to do if you or someone you know is being stalked.
0: So tune in to Strictly Stalking each week as we dive into the largely unknown crime of stalking.
1: Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite true crime podcast. Welcome back to week 38 at the True Crime BB.
0: Hello, this is Beth, and I'm holding puss, so if you hear purring, that's what's up. She won't shut her mouth.
1: And we're not sorry. We love to hear it.
0: (laughs) She is part of our team here. It's just she's usually the obstructive one.
1: All right. Oh, and I'm Bailey.
0: (laughs) And this week, as usual, Bailey's going to be our bad guy, and I will try to follow up with a story that's really kind of also a bad guy, but that's just how it goes around here.
1: Yeah, hang with us, guys, and we'll see how it goes.
0: (laughs) And by the way, this is our fourth start.
1: Yeah. Well, all right. So I'm going to tell you about the murder of Lee Rotatori. Okay. And this one, I highly suggest if you have a map of the United States to have that available because we're going to be in about five different states here.
0: Okay. Just are, the, are the relative locations in the states super critical to understanding the story?
1: Not necessarily, but kind of, because she meets people along the route of where she goes in her life, and so... Okay. September 29th, 1949, in North Dakota, Lee was born with the maiden name Gonzalez. Right after she was born, her family moved out to Rochester, Minnesota, mm-hmm. and there they continued on to have three other children, but she is the oldest. Okay. Then after that, she decided to go to college in Wisconsin. There, at the University of Wisconsin, she got her bachelor's and then her master's in dietary services and food nutrition, so she became a dietitian slash nutritionist. Okay. While she was attending university there in Wisconsin, she ended up marrying a man by the name of Anthony Rotator which is why she is now Lee Rotatory. The two had a son together in 1970, and then the whole family moved to Illinois. It's not really known what year exactly.
0: They are really bouncing around. I know, that's what I'm like.
1: <laughs> so now they're in Illinois in the late 70s, and she and her husband decide it's not working out anymore, and they were going to get a divorce. So that happened in 1977 while they were living in the Chicago area. Right. Now, her son, Michael, decided to stay in Chicago with her ex-husband because with her job as a nutritionist, she had actually been working at a Wisconsin-based nutrition company that worked with hospitals. So what she would do, it's kind of like a traveling nurse, but she was a traveling nutritionist, if that makes sense. That's
0: interesting. So she was a traveling consultant.
1: Any kind of need that there might come up in a hospital setting for that. All right, that's interesting. Yeah, so she did that for a while. And because of that, her son, who was still growing up, they all decided together that it would be better for him to stay with his dad while she went on and continued traveling. Sure,
0: it's a more stable Mm -hmm. home life.
1: While she's traveling back and forth, she ends up meeting another man and marrying him named Jerry Nemke in 1978. However, she kept her previous married name because, again, her son had that name and also... That's the name she had when she got all of her degrees and master's and stuff, so yeah. it was just easier.
0: Plus, Rotatory's kind of a fun name.
1: It is, fun to say, yeah. <laughs> but in 1978, she married this man, Jerry Nemke, and then they ended up actually only staying together a year and got divorced in 1979. Wow. Didn't work out. However, once again, in 1981, they remarried. Jerry's back same, same in. Too. Same, too. Okay. Yeah, so he was her second and third husband. Right. They moved in together and ended up buying a mobile home, which in 1981, when they got remarried, they were now
0: living in Nunica, Michigan. <laughs> so Nunica, Michigan. Nunica, Michigan. It feels like a tongue twister, but it's really not that hard to say. It's not.
1: It, I didn't think it was going to be when I wrote it.
0: <laughs> but yeah, so
1: they are now living in a mobile home in Nunica, Michigan. She's still working that traveling nutritionist job around 1982, Lee got a job opportunity from this company who said, we actually have a full-time job at a large hospital that offers you some stability. It's in a different state, but if you want to come check it out and just get a tour of the premises, meet your coworkers, this could be a really good fit for you. And so she decided, okay, where is it? I'll go out and give it a look-see. And they told her it was going to be a hospital in Council Bluffs, Iowa. So she went out there for a weekend and met all of her coworkers. loved it, and went back home, discussed it with her husband, and he said, yeah, I think if you get offered that job, you should take it, and then we can just, we have a mobile home. It's not hard for us to just move it. That's what they decided to do. So his job was not a
0: factor in them moving?
1: No, he worked at like, I think it was a convenience store, so he could probably okay, move so anywhere in the yeah, world. Yeah, <laughs> he, he
0: can find a position wherever he goes. Yeah, worked out. Got it.
1: She was set to move to Iowa on June 21st, 1982, which was a Monday. She came and moved into a motel for a couple of weeks. So the hotel she'd be staying at was called Best Western Frontier Motor Lodge of Council Bluffs. Okay. So her first day of orientation, she arrived on the 21st, which was a Monday, and then her first day was supposed to be on Friday, June 25th. Just gave her a couple days to explore the city and whatever everything was going fine june 24th so the day before she's supposed to start her orientation a few of her co-workers that she had met previously when she came to visit got in contact with her and said hey we're all going with our families out to a lake on a boat and we're all just gonna bond and hang out and you can get to know us a little bit better and just have a nice day in the area this was a thursday a Thursday afternoon, yeah. But okay. it's the middle of June, so I think a lot of these people were like,
0: their kids are all home from school, they're all... Okay, so it wasn't like they were going to go out and stay out until the wee hours. No, this
1: was a family afternoon picnic type of boating
0: okay situation. I'm with you.
1: So she agreed to go, and they all went out on their boat and hung out until Thursday evening, about 7, 8 o'clock-ish. She headed back to the motel to get ready for bed and prepare for the morning of her first day at work. The hotel room that she was staying at was room 106, which is on the first floor. Makes sense. Yes. She stopped and got McDonald's, ate dinner back at the motel, and then was expected to come back to work in the morning. However, the next day, Lee did not show up to her shift at the hospital, and so the hospital employees called the employees of the Best Western and asked them to go up and check on her.
0: Clearly, she wasn't going to skip her first day of work. And she's been there all week, just chomping at the bit, ready to yeah, go. waiting.
1: They asked the employees at the Best Western to go check on her, and they did. And when they went into her room, they found 32-year-old Lee Rodatori lying on her back in her pajamas, deceased from a single stab wound to her heart. Oh, my God. And even more confusing, there were no signs of forced entry. They did not have any security footage. No cameras caught up. I don't know if they had any outside her door, but at least in the entrance of where the motel was, they didn't see anybody that came or went. So they didn't find anything really. And they did collect all the blood and stuff like that and all any DNA. But they didn't swabs. know what to do
0: with it in 1982. Exactly.
1: So all they could do was preserve it and say, hopefully someday this means something otherwise. Yeah. Her family did ask questions and they were like, okay, well, can you preserve the scene as much as possible? Save anything you can just in case. And then once there was nothing else they could do, I mean, they did an autopsy and everything, but then she was cremated because they wanted her remains back with them. Okay. After this, the police were stumped because she didn't have anybody that lived in this area that wanted her dead or even had a reason to want her dead. She didn't know anybody other than like three people that she met the day
0: before. Right. And there was no sexual assault, it sounds like.
1: I don't know if there was sexual assault or not. They still haven't released what DNA was found. That's why I'm, like, kind of, eh. So I don't know.
0: She might have had a fling, or...
1: I mean, if the door wasn't messed with at all, it's not unheard of, you know? Right. We don't know. So the police decided to look into Lee's husband, Jerry Nemke, who was still back in Michigan at the time of her murder. Mm Mm-hmm. As they looked into him, they discovered some alarming things in his past. And I don't know if Lee knew about his past or not. It kind of seems like she had to have. Because once I tell you, it's how do you just forget about that?
0: Okay, this is intriguing.
1: (laughs) Yes, police looked up his file, Jerry's, and when Jerry was 17 years old in 1960, He was actually tried and convicted because he had confessed to the brutal murder of a 16-year-old waitress who he had beaten to death with a brick after he went on a date with her. At 17? At 17. He escaped a group home, like a juvenile home, and then went on the run, met this waitress while she was working, took her out to dinner. All of her coworkers saw him leave with her, and then she was found brutally beat to death with a brick.
0: So what was he in the group home for? I think he was just a troubled teen,
1: and he just... It sounds like he was a super troubled teen. (laughs) Yeah, but he confessed to this and then was convicted and actually received the death penalty in the state of Illinois for it. Wow. However, it sounds like over a technicality, they took back the charge, overturned it, and then two years after he got the death penalty, they retried him, and he received instead 75 years in prison for this crime.
0: However, I was going to say, he's not 95, so...
1: Yeah, I looked up, I tried to find what the hell happened. Still using the same name. It's not like he just escaped prison and went on the run. He's still the same name. So I don't know what happened, if it was overturned again, or if there was an appeal of some kind. I have no idea. But somehow, two decades later, he ended up marrying... Oh, my
0: God.
1: That's why I'm like, I don't think if she knew about this, she probably would have married him.
0: Because I certainly wouldn't. (laughs) No. I wouldn't even want to associate with him if I knew he had beaten to death a woman the first day he went out with her. Mm hmm I mean, anybody. But, I mean... This woman basically had—you were nobody in her life at mm-hmm. this point, and you thought you had the right to do that. So, no, I don't want to date you.
1: And he confessed. It's not like he got appealed because they found new evidence. No, he, he definitely did this. He just got out for some kind of weird technicality, and he got oh. lucky twice, it seems. so. Wow. They found that, and they said, well, you sound mighty effing suspicious now, so what's your alibi? Let's have a conversation. However, they did follow up on his alibi. Apparently, he was working at his shift at work, and they had proof of that. They had other witnesses there. They had people that he s- served as a customer, and so he was completely cleared, and they had to move on from Interesting. that. Mm-hmm. After all of this, it was, again, a standstill. Police had nowhere else to turn. They couldn't figure anything out. They, they didn't have anything to go on. Except for the DNA evidence. Until technology can come around, there wasn't anything left to do. Finally, in 2001, police sent some of the samples that they had from the hotel room to a lab to see what they could determine based off of the swabs that they did have. Sure. All that they could tell in 2001 was that it was a DNA profile of a man. And then they also had the database of felons who had recently submitted their samples. And so they ran that DNA profile they found, but nothing came back. So All they know now is that this man has not been arrested recently for a similar crime. In 2019, they submitted it once again, but this time they knew about the technology of familial matches and decided, well, clearly this guy's still not in CODIS because of whatever reason he's not committed a crime since then. But maybe somebody will come up as a match. Right. And finally, in 2021, they did find a match to a female relative and determined that it was a father-daughter relationship. So oh, wow. So her father had committed this crime.
0: Oh, jeez!
1: So they called this woman up and she said, absolutely, I'll give you my DNA. And they confirmed that was the daughter and the DNA from her father matched the person who was found in the hotel room. Wow. The daughter was like, I hate to tell you guys this, but my dad was actually murdered in 1982
0: as well. Wow. Yeah. So, was it before or after her death? After. Okay.
1: After they confirmed everything, they found out the man was identified as Thomas O. Freeman from Illinois in 1982 when he murdered Lee. He had been 35 years old and she died, remember, June 25th, 1982. Right. Thomas Freeman's body was found October of 1982 and it was determined he had been dead for at least three months. He had been shot multiple times, and they found him in a shallow grave off a random road. But that means he died literally within weeks, if not like a
0: week, of murdering Lee. My head is a spinning. I've got all kinds of thoughts tangling around. I in know. There. All right. Not that I'm sorry that that happened to him. I know, that's one of those things... Karma, bitches. If he's not going to get caught for it while he's alive, this is a
1: happy second, I guess. It's karma. So now, we're at the point where Lee's murder has been solved. But now we're trying to figure out who murdered
0: Thomas. So they had never solved his murder either.
1: They never solved his murder. However, most people seem to think that Lee's husband, Jerry... Might have some hookups. I mean, they're both from Illinois. Otherwise, they couldn't find any other way why Thomas would even know her unless he, like, somehow followed her.
0: So, is the thought, then, that Thomas knew Lee because he knew Jerry? Yes. And that Thomas came to see Lee, killed Lee, would it have been for Jerry? Or in spite of Jerry?
1: There's all kinds of theories. Like I said, we don't know exactly how they know each other. Thomas and Jerry might have been friends because they just hung out around the same crowd.
0: But as soon as you said he was shot and found in a shallow grave, Mm -hmm. I thought, oh, Lee's husband shot him and put him in a shallow grave. Mm -hmm. But either, in my mind, Thomas did it and Jerry was pissed about it and Mm -hmm. killed him, or Thomas did it for Jerry and then Jerry didn't want a witness
1: yeah, the whole two can keep a secret if one of them is dead. Yeah. That kind of, yeah. So. I it, mean, that absolutely does make sense. But, unfortunately, everybody in the story is now deceased. So, we don't really know. It's just kind of all up in the air, but it seems like it
0: got our justice, I'd say. Yeah, she did. And Jerry's already deceased, too? Yes. Yeah. Did Jerry have any kids? Mm-mm. He never had any kids. Huh. No. Nope. That's... Really interesting. There's so many things about this that are just jumbling around in my head.
1: Well, the thing is, is like if the police couldn't even figure out that Thomas had killed Lee, how the hell would Jerry have known? Unless he did hire him or unless he heard from the grapevine of people, oh yeah, I heard Thomas is on the run for something.
0: Yeah. I mean, and there's always the chance that the two murders were unrelated. Yeah. That somebody just took out Thomas mm -hmm. and had nothing to do with Lee's death. But the timing of it is really wonky. I don't know. Well, that was a very well-told story. It's going to be a shit show trying to edit that, but it was a good story. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) Not your fault. I mean, it just is. We've had uh, sort of all of the... Every single thing that could be a problem has been a problem today. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so my... I'm putting this in air quotes. My upper story Mm -hmm. has some bad things in it, as they always do. Let me just get into it. All right. David Wooten was born in 1979, and unfortunately there's not a lot of biographical information available about him. David was known among his friends as a sweet and generous person. He was gentle and giving, he made his friends laugh, he helped them find light when they were feeling dark. Elizabeth Ann Clement, known to most as Lizzie, was born February the 3rd, 1997 to Jenny Clement and lived in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Her mom called her Love Bug which I think is adorable. She was feisty and vibrant, but spiritual and caring. And her friends loved how much fun she was to be around. Laura Savannah Jastry was born April 8th, 1988, and also lived in Tennessee. These three people made life choices that may not have been the healthiest, but they were nice people who made some risky choices. Mm -hmm. Laura is the first to say she was not an angel. She was not perfect, and we all know that nobody is. She had a couple of DUIs. She had had a suspended driver's license, some supervised probation dating back to 2010 and 2011. Mm -hmm. She knew living that way was dangerous, but she had herself convinced that she was stuck. She saw no way for her to get out of the partying and drug scene. Mm -hmm. So she took the path of least resistance and just went along with the flow. By the 20 teens, Laura had become relatively heavy into the drug scene and admits that she spent a lot of time using drugs, mostly methamphetamine. Laura and David and Lizzie had become good friends and they had begun to spend more and more time together and much of that time was using drugs because they were all addicts. Mm-hmm. The three of them occasionally went to the home of a fourth friend in Bradyville, Tennessee, where they would hang out and use drugs together and then they would just crash for periods of time until they could go back and do whatever things in their normal lives that they had to do to get by and then they would get back together again and come and crash again at his pad. So when they headed out to that friend's house on January the 15th, 2017, it was really not an unusual thing. It was not a special day in any way for them, and they really didn't expect anything out of the ordinary. So the three of them hopped in the car, and they headed to their friend's house. Robert Jesse Mount, who was 36 in 2017, was in the fringes in Laura's group of friends. He was someone that they all knew, but she hadn't seen him for at least a month. Mount was a little bit shadier than the rest of the group. Most of the group were methamphetamine users Mm -hmm. and partiers. But Mount was hardcore, and he was not against an occasional home invasion to go get things to sell for drug money. Okay. On the morning of January fifteenth, 2017, he had driven to Bradyville in Cannon County, Tennessee, planning to burglarize the home of an acquaintance, which happened to be the same person whose house the other trio had decided to visit that day. Not knowing that they were going to be arriving there, he had kicked in a side door and he was going through the house taking the items that he thought he could sell. He's inside tossing the home when outside he heard a car pull up. He recognized all three of the occupants of the car and he knew that they would also recognize him. So he casually walked outside and approached the car as if to greet them without anything seeming out of place. It's just, hey, we kind of know this guy and he's coming out to say hello. Mm -hmm. But as he reached the vehicle, Mount raised a twenty-two caliber pistol and immediately began firing before the car had even been shifted into park. David Wooten had been driving and he was the first hit by gunfire. He was struck multiple times and was quickly killed where he sat. Lizzie Clement jumped out of the car while Mount was shooting into the car and ran desperately into the house. Laura Jastry also jumped out to follow Lizzie into the house. Mount shot Laura as he chased behind them. The two women did make it into the house, and they locked themselves inside a bathroom, but Mount was able to force the door open and get inside the bathroom. As soon as he got into the room, he shot Lizzie in cold blood in the head, and then immediately struck Laura in the head with the butt of the handgun. Laura ran from the bathroom into a bedroom to try to escape, so she's already been shot, Mm -hmm. and now she's been crashed in the head with the butt of a pistol, But he follows her in there and pinned her down on the bed where he continued to attack her. Because now he's just set on killing all three of them. Now, Laura is trapped on this bed and he's crouched on top of her. He's got a hunting knife in one hand and a box cutter in the other hand. Christ. And he's just stabbing at her wildly. It reminds me of the story of Melissa Dome, Mm -hmm. where he's just frantically stabbing and stabbing and stabbing at her. Mm -hmm. Stabbing at her face. He's stabbing at her abdomen, her neck, anywhere Mm -hmm. that he could reach. Using both hands. I mean, he's not just doing it with his dominant hand. He's got the box cutter in one and the hunting knife in the other and he is just going at it frantically. Laura was trying to catch the blades over and over, just trying to protect herself any way that she could. Leaving her hands just shredded into ribbons. Mm -hmm. But she couldn't catch all the stabs. And Mount continued to jab the box cutter at her face. He ended up stabbing her in the right eye, destroying it. He climbed down. She's lying on the bed, just basically destroyed from head to toe by the gunshot, by the hit on her head, by all these stab wounds. He's like, okay, they're all dead. I can leave now. So he was sure they were, and he fled the scene. When the homeowner, and this kills me, and his eight-year-old son oh. arrived home less than an hour later. They pulled into their driveway to find absolute carnage. And I have mixed feelings about this because if he hadn't come home, there'd be no hope for anybody, right? But he had his eight-year-old son, and this is basically a drug den.
1: Yeah, why, why was he even there to begin with?
0: Yeah, so I, I have mixed feelings about it. I'm, I'm not trying to be a douche about being judgmental, but... Mm-hmm. Why are you allowing that activity to just go on in your home if you're going to bring your son home at any given moment? I mean,
1: imagine if he had gotten there earlier with his son. Yeah, they would have been shot or stabbed or whatever. Not to be judgmental, but there is a little bit of judgment there. (laughs) Yeah, there's
0: more to it than just, oh, thank goodness they got there in time to call 911. For sure, yeah. They pulled in, they saw the carnage, David Wooten was still sitting up in the car, in the driver's seat, dead from the bullet wounds. Mm. They saw blood on the ground between the car and the house where Mount had shot Laura in the back while she was running into the house. Then they went inside. They discovered Lizzie in the bathroom with gunshot wound to her head and then Laura at the center of the gory scene in the bedroom. Mm. Both Laura and Lizzie are still alive at this point. Oh my goodness. Laura's neck was completely sliced open with a dozen stab wounds. Just many, many stab wounds. They couldn't find any pulse. Her eye had been stabbed out. And this is rough. She had been disemboweled. Her internal organs were out of her abdominal cavity and they were just laying next to her on the bed. The homeowner frantically called 911. And so emergency services arrived as quickly as they could to try to save these women. Lizzie and Laura were rushed to Thomas Rutherford Hospital, but their wounds were so severe that they were then transported via life flight to Vanderbilt University Medical Center. Lizzie's head wound was too severe, and she was unable to be saved. She was only 19 years old. She was pronounced dead shortly after arriving at Vanderbilt. Despite her horrific wounds, Laura was conscious long enough to identify Robert Jesse Mount as their attacker. Mm -hmm. So it's fortunate that at least these people that were attacked knew him. Yeah, I can't imagine just... That they would have no clue otherwise. I mean, there was there was some DNA evidence. Mm-hmm. So eventually they might have found him, but I don't know if he had a record to connect him with this DNA.
1: Yeah, but imagine if they didn't know who it was and they were waiting for these results to come back, being the person who owns that house, thinking this person could come back at any given point.
0: Yeah, that would be terrifying. Ugh. While Lizzie and Laura were in the helicopter being life-flighted to Vanderbilt Medical Center, Robert Mount, the attacker, had fled the area in his car and headed to Smyrna, Tennessee. He was spotted late that night at the Stonecrest Medical Center in Smyrna, where he had gone to seek treatment for some large cuts on his hand and his leg. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Due to what was called strange behavior at the hospital, and it wasn't really clarified what that strange behavior consisted of, but I assume he was high on meth, drugged up on meth. Could also be you're supposed to report
1: it if a person comes in with wounds and they don't want to tell you how they got it, or it's not matching up to whatever story you're giving or something like that. Oh, so
0: you think maybe it was a medical professional who actually took the picture because of his strange behavior. Possibly. I was thinking it may have been another patient, but you're right. That makes a lot more sense Mm -hmm. that it would be the medical staff saying, all right, something's up with this dude. So they took the picture and they planned to share that with the police. Sure. Because Laura had already provided an ID on who had done this. When the photo of Robert Mount at the hospital surfaced to the police, a search warrant was then issued for his home. Law enforcement went to his residence where he was found hiding under a staircase in the garage. So officers pulled him out, extricated him from the staircase hidey hole, and arrested him.
1: Oh, I'm sorry. I know this isn't funny. I'm just imagining them opening the door and then just... Okay, got him.
0: <laughs> yeah, hey, don't hurt my stitches in my hand and my leg. Yeah, did he use his real name when he checked into the hospital? I imagine he have to, unless he's going to pay for it out of pocket. During the well, search of Mount's home, blood belonging to Laura Jastry and Elizabeth Clement was found on his shoes. Also, blood recovered from a doorknob at the crime scene was determined to be that of Robert Mount. So he was tied in both directions to this crime. Laura spent five months in the hospital. Her wounds included four gunshot wounds and 37 stab wounds. She'd been stabbed in the face and many, many times in the neck. She lost her right eye. She had been disemboweled. She's had 29 surgeries to reconstruct the devastation to her face and abdomen and to repair functionality as much as possible. But, you know, hands and face. Those um, are delicate, delicate things to make them completely functional again.
1: Yeah, the nerve endings there are so hard to
0: fix yes. in both of those. Yeah. Yes. The entire right half of her face had to be reconstructed with titanium Mm -hmm. because of the catastrophic damage not only to her skin and her muscles and her nerves, but to her skeletal structure underneath. Her right eye is an acrylic prosthetic. And unfortunately, despite attempts to repair her hands, she has several fingers that will no longer move because of the severe defensive wounds that she incurred. Mm -hmm. But had she not incurred those severe defensive wounds, she would not be alive now. She fought like a warrior against this guy. So if she had not, she would not be alive to tell now. Laura summoned all of her inner strength and stood in testimony against Robert Mount in court. In August 2021, four and a half years after the unprovoked attack, he finally pled guilty to two counts of first-degree murder and one count of attempted first-degree murder. Laura, as well as the families of all three of the victims, were present for the plea and sentencing. He was sentenced to life in prison for the murders of David Wooten and Elizabeth Clement and an additional 25 years for the attempted murder of Laura Jastry. Based on the sentencing guidelines, he will not be eligible for parole until having served 51 years, at which time he will be 88 years old. Over time, Laura has done a lot of healing and a lot of soul searching. She embraces that her world is better without drugs in it. She's sober and she says she's doing great. She wishes that she had had a chance to say goodbye to her friends David and Lizzie. David, she said, had a huge heart and would have given you the shirt off his back, even if that was all he had in the world. Lizzie was a sweetheart, a spitfire, and a fighter. Laura often wonders why she survived while her friends didn't. She had more wounds than either of them.
1: Yeah, I was thinking that too. That's incredible.
0: But she chooses to look at it that she wants to share her story of survival to help other people. Mm -hmm. She wants her survival, her physical recovery, and her sobriety to inspire people to stay off or to quit using illicit drugs. It's a dangerous world. She said, quote, You may think you're as deep into the drug world, as deep into that lifestyle that you can't get out, but you can, and it's not worth it. So while she was on the wrong track when the attack took place, her life has taken quite a detour. She lost two good friends, and she had to go through hell. But she chooses now to see her survival against all odds as a tangible second chance. Mm -hmm. And she's moving forward with her many, many scars, her reconstructed face, and her prosthetic eye with the ongoing aches and pains of dozens of surgeries, but she bravely embraces her sobriety and looks forward to the future with an optimism that she never had before this, before this brutal attack changed her life forever. Mm -hmm. So clearly, we are not saying the attack was in any way a good thing, but it is a positive that she has taken this second chance that she has and that she's making the most of it. So we wish her well, and we encourage her to keep spreading that message, which I will share again. She said, you may think you're as deep into the drug world, as deep into that lifestyle that you can't get out, but you can. And it's not worth it. And that is the Mm -hmm. story of Laura Jastry, who should not have survived that, but she Mm -hmm. did. She needed that second chance in her life, and she is using it. Yeah. I
1: mean, the truth of the matter is... If that hadn't happened to her, she
0: might not still be here anyway, you know? I had the same thought, because people who use methamphetamine age themselves by Mm -hmm. a lot. It's so hard on the body. Mm Mm-hmm. So she regained her life. For sure. And that's all I have. Today's kind of a rough one. It was. I'm not going to lie to you. So we are hoping that somebody will go and review us.
1: And rate anywhere you listen to podcasts. Also, you can find our social media on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at True Crime b
0: And we have an
1: email True Crime B&B Pod at gmail.com.
0: And you can also email our cat at True Crime B&B puss dot <laughs> nope. <laughs> nope, that's not it either. You can email our cat on Instagram. <laughs> you can email our cat at True Crime B&B Puss at gmail.com. Please don't email her. We don't check that. <laughs> we don't. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. You're right. We don't check that. Don't send her in. She's probably got more email in there than we do. <laughs> no. So you can find our cat on Instagram at True Crime BNB Puss.
1: Yep. And you can feel free to message her whether or not you get a response. That's not up to us. It's really up to her. So we'll see. Mm
0: -hmm. All right. Thank you for being here this week, guys. And we will be here next week to see you again. Yep. Bye, all. Bye. (laughs) (laughs) I was nodding, and I didn't actually hit the button. I totally lied to you. (laughs) I was like, I thought I read the room right. In in football, they call that a head fake.
1: (laughs) Well, welcome back to week 38. Welcome back? Welcome back. <laughs> 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 you nodded that I had to look it deep in your eyes to make sure it wasn't a lie. Get it? <laughs> the man was identified as Rob, Rob? Where the fuck did I get Rob? His name's Thomas.
0: <laughs> you mean like Robert Mount?
1: Oh, I thought you were pointing it plus over your shoulder.
0: Like Robert over here. Robert the cat? <laughs> Robert the cat. That's our alter ego. gov. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm saying calm. It's Gov.
1: Oh, I think we were saying Org,
0: actually. (laughs) (laughs) Brand new dance now. (laughs)